You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. I want to unpack your career and some of the things that you've done, but one of the ways that we were put in touch was... Uh, through our mutual friend Janosh Newman and I know that you were involved in a documentary could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about that documentary this fell into my lap in uh, 2017 I was contacted by this uh, really phenomenal journalist Justin Warlick Justin was working with this production company called Hot Snakes Media and they were teaming up with A&E to uh, produce a show that was going to be about undercover operations. And they were going to pick uh, three or four or five former um, agents, officers who had worked in government and had you know some kind of background in undercover operations. Now, Justin had gone on to an FBI retired site, uh, discovered me that one of my specialties from the past was being an undercover program coordinator. I, I was that for a number of years in, in the Houston division, which means I, I oversaw, uh, you know, technical aspects and uh, certain administrative aspects of all the undercover operations across all, all um, investigative areas, whether it was, you know, criminal, um, national security and, and so forth. And prior to that, I had um, early part of my career, I had worked drug cartels for a number of years, and we were extensively, extensively involved in uh, undercover operations. And I was a case agent on on several. I was um, contact agent for undercovers. Uh, I had just a little bit of undercover, you know, roles myself, um, but. Anyway, so Justin picked me out. There were a number of interviews with uh, the the network and the production team. 
And during the, the process, they said, well, tell us, you know, tell us about your career and what you enjoy. And I said, you know, probably one of the biggest things I enjoyed was working Russian organized crime. And I said, I just found them to be so challenging. And they were like chess masters and always thinking ahead. But at the same time, they could be brutal, just very complex, interesting work. And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I had a colleague recently who uh, had some connection with the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. And he told me that there was Russian organized crime presence in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. I go, what? You got to be kidding. I had no idea. I've never heard that. So they go, wow, that sounds fascinating. So they they say, okay, let's let's pursue that. And they made a decision to to drop the other show and to run with this. So they they had us go do a sizzle reel in uh, the Smoky Mountains, and we did our research. But then it's you know so we're asking ourselves why why are there even a number of Russians in that part in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Okay, so we started looking in more into it. It's like why is there such a sizable population in the mountains? And, and we come across these stories. And again, Justin is a phenomenal researcher, just a really phenomenal uh, journalist. And we discovered that in 1994, an Oak Ridge National Lab nuclear scientist had traveled to Russia and uh, as part of uh, checking out the security and safety after Chernobyl and uh, had uh, become disillusioned with uh, his line of work and decided he wanted to start an exchange program to bring, bring kids over to work in uh, Dollywood and the area. And there was a, that was welcome because there was a need for the kids to come over and work. So an exchange program started. Anyway, that's a, uh, getting back to the main part of the story is that, um, this, this Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which, by the way, is probably the most sensitive, prominent scientific and technical facility, perhaps in the world, when it comes to, particularly with nuclear material. And there are other cutting edge, you know, research that goes on in the area um, and very, very valuable you know, national security area. So we, we go back and look at um, Howard Kurz was the, the scientist, his, what he'd done on TV before and uh, his talking about the story. And then we went and interviewed him and he told us, yeah, that he, uh, uh, he was warned that to stay away from, be careful with the uh, translators, you know, and he just kind of laughed about it. And he also said that on, on a trip there that he uh, had this overwhelming thirst. And so the, the other, his Duma, his colleague, pulled over to the side of the road to uh, kiosk for water and they're standing in line. And he's talking about, you know, I hope we really get some good kids. I don't want, you know, to bring bad kids there. And this beautiful blonde female behind him says, oh, by the way, I, I couldn't help but overhear what you were talking about. I'm a teacher. I know good students. I can bring them there. And, and like I said, in undercover operations, I dealt with um, national security matters. So in, in my understanding, uh, a U.S. government official traveling to, to Russia 
nothing happens by coincidence to to that person when they're there. Yeah, and so long story short, it became obvious to us that this was a setup. Um, the the translator he ends up met, marrying was a setup, and the the teacher who spoke beautiful blonde teacher who spoke perfect English was a setup. And um, another thing that in, in the process that really got my attention was that we interviewed Howard three times. Each interview, he said exactly the same thing about the details. I mean, word for word, almost as an investigator that gets your attention is like, why is he repeating the same words, the same statements, the exact, it, it, it was remarkable to me. Because people don't normally do that. No, not, not normally. They alter it some that's, you know, the substance may be the same, but it was just remarkable how it was almost verbatim. Um, so we, we put together, uh, you know, we started this investigation and the network says, okay, go find a spy. In, in that year and a half, I interviewed more interesting people than most, you know, agents do in a whole career. Um, you know, everybody from Ola Kalug and Jack Barsky and um, the, uh, the uh, Mike McFall, former ambassador um, to Russia, and uh, the granddaughter, great-granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev at uh, the New University. One of her students turned out to be uh, the the Russian posing as uh, you know Murphy, the the Murphy couple um, that were part of the Operation Ghost Stories. The FBI arrested eleven back in 2010, and uh, including Anna Chapman, uh, Juan Lozano, whose uh, real name was uh, if I get this right, um, Mikhail Antonovich, uh, in he was posing as South American. Now, um, I interviewed the, a neighbor of the, the Murphys. And again, it was interesting to get, you know, the story like, you know, they just appeared like normal you know, Americans in the show, the Americans, you know, developed as a result of, of them pretty much. And what was uh, one fascinating that thing that I, I left with was we, we talked with the attorney of Juan Lozano or Lazaro, sorry, Juan Lazaro. Uh, and she said she had no idea he was Russian. He spoke Russian or anything remotely similar to that until, until two Russian diplomats showed up in jail and they all started speaking Russian. So that's just how good uh, their tradecraft was. We found a network and we found people that were responsible for reporting and whether they were duped or um, Voluntary participants, witting or unwitting, it was uh, uh, you know definitely the, the groundwork for a spy network, for a very valuable um, area of uh, scientific knowledge and, and um, cutting edge research. So, just a few questions to clarify, Dennis. So, where is Oak Ridge National Laboratory for people that don't know Tennessee? Is it? Is it southeast, northwest, the Mississippi border? Where, where is it? Yeah, it's 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 adjacent to Knoxville, which is uh, eastern part, eastern uh, central to northern eastern uh, part of Tennessee. Um, 
it's it's kind of secluded area. It was an army base uh, prior to it being designated. Um, actually, the the initiation of the Manhattan Project occurred there. Uh, it, it moved to Los Alamos uh, to you know for the testing and everything, but basically the research was done there and they created this laboratory around that um and it's a fascinating area it, it, it really is uh in you know probably 50 miles away is pigeon forge with uh dollywood and all the the amusements i mean this area brings in i i think i was told like 10 million or more visitors a year and then there's gatlinburg which you know is a big tourist area um so that's that's where oak ridge is and so is this oak ridge national laboratory is this part of the government or is that a private organization or it's it's part of um it's within the the auspices i believe of the department of energy okay so it is it is a government uh, facility so the the russians around there were they organized crime or were they uh, Russian intelligence operatives, or was there, or are the two of them never completely distinct? Uh, all of the above, I, I would say. One of the one of the things that I think would be quite interesting would be to go back to the beginning of the story and then maybe explore some of the different things you've done in your really rich career. So, uh, how how did you end up in the FBI? Because I know that you went to law school, right? Yes. Um, I was one of those probably rare kids who knew exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up. You know, I grew up watching you know shows and uh, about the FBI, and and uh, that just it stuck with me. And I said, you know, I think that's what I want to do. So I, I pursued that route and that interest. And then when it came to college, um, I was like, well, there the the avenues of getting in, or you know, as a, a lawyer. Uh, accountant who's CPA qualified, uh, or diverse background, science, you know, so forth, with a certain number of years of experience, work experience. So I, I went the law school route. And actually, uh, because the hiring was um, limited at the time, I actually worked for about three years, two and a half, th- uh, three years, th- two and a half years, and I was a prosecutor for two and a half years uh, there. And um, and then the, you know my my ticket got punched and and I'm like yep this is it I'm I'm going to live a life of adventure and you know see the world so to speak and uh, and uh, and it was it was a remarkable experience. Tell us what it was like when you joined and what it was like when you left. Well, um, when I when I joined, it was uh, first of all you don't know where you're going to you know, be assigned and, you know, they, they said Houston, Texas, and I'm going, what, Houston? I mean, is that a cow town or something? And, and a guy in my class, oh, no, no, you're, 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 it's the fourth largest city in the country. Uh, you're just, you're going to have a great time. And, and I did. And, and, and uh, it became one of the, the hubs of drug trafficking, drug cartels. It's kind of shifted from, you know, South Florida, the Caribbean to, Bringing the drugs up through Mexico and, and, and then involving you know the uh, Mexican drug cartels, so we worked both Colombians and, and Mexican you know cartels. Um, and it, at the time, like I said, there was I, I remember the office 
uh, where all the criminal squads, including you know, uh, the ones we had, and there were a number of drug squads, organized crime we did at the same time. And there were white collar crime squads and um, theft squads and interstate theft squads and things of that nature. And then there was almost like a physical divide, like the elevators, the, the uh, foreign net, uh, counterintelligence squads were in the other side. And, um, and we intermingled, but it was, it was just, uh, it was a whole different um, area. Um, after 9-11, uh, and when the focus shifted to, you know, predominantly working counterterrorism, uh, and they started letting down some of the, the barriers, the walls to information sharing. And I'll tell you a, a funny story. My first, um, as, as a brand new agent, no matter what your background is, you have to learn your, your the trust. And so they never let me go out on a surveillance, you know, with them until one day we had a, a wiretap on, um, it was part of the pizza connection case out of the, the Northeast, but we had um, Sicilians who were running a pizza parlor in, uh, in Galveston, Texas. And I can discuss this because it was prosecuted and everything. And uh, we knew that the, uh, and, and, and this was very, I remember the two brothers and it was, it was like right out of the movies. I mean, they they were very animated, very comical. We had a wiretap. We, we found out that they were going to travel to New York. So we wanted to put them on the plane and contact the agents so they could take them off, you know, and follow them once they got to New York. So they said, okay, we need, we need you today. And it was a Saturday and it was February, I think. So I had to find a car. And it's not like, I think cars are more plentiful now. And, and eventually we, you know, you got assigned cars, but um, so there was a white color squad next to us. So that Friday, I'm like, has anybody got a car? I need a car. He said, oh yeah, yeah. There's, there's one that, you know, it kind of, you know, it sits around a lot, doesn't always work right, but yeah, you can take that. So I took that and it was like a Plymouth or something, you know? And uh, so we're, we're on surveillance and it's raining and it's cold and the car turns off and I can't get it started. So one of the other agents, senior agents comes by and he says, and at that time they call out, say they're, they're moving, the subjects are moving. So they had to go. He says, sorry, but I'm like, okay, go, you know. So I had to walk to a service station in the you know rain and like, you know, 30 degree weather and get a record it comes, he jumps me and I'm like, okay, I can make it. Cause they had, they detoured, they stopped at some house. I'm like, I can make it. I can see him get on the plane. That's my objective. So I'm rushing up to the airport, you know, in Houston and I get pulled over by a patrol car right at the airport for an expired registration on the government car. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. 
Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. I know that you've also worked Colombian organized crime, Mexican cartels, the Russian mafia, Sicilians. Do you have to approach each of them in a different way or, or is it pretty much the same set of tools just applied to a different group of people? Yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's a mixed bag. There are investigations and investigation, and, but you do need to understand the culture and the differences. Um, the Colombian cartels, we worked mostly the Cali cartel, and uh, uh, they, were, they were more business-like. They were, um, uh, I, I've never seen such business ingenuity and still looking at them and studying them. They would find out ways to cooperate, you know, and, and if you've seen Narcos, the series Narcos, it, it does a good job of, of setting this out, but they would learn to utilize each other's expertise and, and, and it was a business model. Um, you know, they may be competitors, but at some point it's like, okay, you can, uh, the ships aren't working anymore. The, the planes are getting interdicted. So let's, how can we get the, the shipments in, uh, to the U S well, you use the, uh, Mexican cartels who've been running contraband for, for decades across the border. Uh, and uh, you, you work out a sharing arrangement. Um, the Mexican cartels, we work primarily the, uh, the Gulf cartel, and um, we, we did a pretty good job of dismantling it, putting Juan Garcia Abrego, multi-agency, multi-case uh, matters. And um, I had become sort of a, a, one of the lead agents for putting a number of different cases together in which there had been seizures of over uh, like uh, 10,000 kilos of cocaine, um, multi-millions of dollars. And uh, so I, I had prosecuted or testified in a trial uh, and uh, they moved it from Brownsville to Corpus Christi. Brownsville's right at the tip of uh, Texas border uh, with Mexico and Corpus Christi's uh, two or three hours north of that because uh, there had been two, two hits. And I remember testifying uh, about the organization. I had this picture of them and I would say, okay, this is this, this guy's in Mexican prison, this guy's in US prison, this guy was killed by them, this guy was killed by a rival organization and go through the, the, the photos and this one has moved up and so forth. So I'm, I'm driving back to Houston uh, that evening and I get a call from the office. They said, hey, just want to give you a heads up, you know, watch, watch your back even more because uh, two witnesses just got killed. One had been a cooperator. The other was, would not even testify. He was called to testify for the government. He wouldn't say anything. They, he still got killed. Uh, another thing that we, we did and I became kind of adept at was getting uh, defendants to cooperate, cartel members, you know, getting them to cooperate. 
and um, even if even if they spoke were primarily Spanish speakers, you you develop a, a bond with them, a rapport, and you try to treat them with respect. Um, so the dealing with the Russian organized crime, and we had uh, some Ukrainians involved, and they were also cooperators. Um, it was a very much a learning experience because they that was very different from a lot of the other organizations I had worked. It, as I've said before, um, they're in many ways like chess players. And they think, you know, four, five, six moves ahead where US, we're, we're you know, maybe two, two ahead or three at the time. It's just a whole different, but at the same time, they could be uh, very brutal. You know, to the uninitiated, this all sounds incredibly dangerous, going up against the Gulf Cartel, the Cali Cartel, Russian organized crime. How much do you feel exposed and how much is there a kind of halo around you as an FBI agent? So working the, particularly the, the Colombian cartels, we didn't feel that threatened because they were business, more business oriented. You now we had, um, very ingrained on the covers who I, I think were always at risk. And um, uh, they, but for the most part, and, and we would hear on wiretaps, like one time one of, one of our colleagues are on our squad, we found out that they, they were talking about killing him. And I think at some point they realized, well, wait a minute, it, he's, he's an FBI agent. No, it's it's going to be bad for business. So they they didn't, or something else transpired. But uh, but when it comes to more like the gang levels, the street levels, the the younger, it is more dangerous because they don't they don't think like that. They don't think the business way necessarily, and they don't have that same reasoning that uh, a more mature person might have. Um, and you know, just an example, what last week or two weeks ago, two agents, FBI agents were killed on a, uh, an arrest for, um, you know, pornography, child pornography. I, I think that the, the image of the FBI agent does carry a, a bit of um, cachet that, uh, that is helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's very dangerous out there now. Um, when I ran our special operations group and we were involved in a, uh, a takedown of uh, some MS-13 members and the SWAT team was set up in a house and, and there was a shootout. I just think it's riskier now um, that, than it was you know, back in the early 90s. And um, there was a, a lot of danger, but uh, um, I just think there there's so many variables and so many unknowns and, and the climate out there is such that uh, there's concern about anti-government sentiment and, and everything. So, When do you join up and when do you leave, Dennis? Yeah, I was, uh, I entered the FBI in 1986 and I, I left in 2008. And you start your career in Houston and you end in Houston, is that right? I did. And 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 give us a sense of the, the journey between those stints and Houston. What are 
What are some of the other things that you've done? You know, the drug cartels, and I, I did that until at the same time I was on SWAT team and enhanced SWAT team and uh, a firearms instructor, excuse me, I was um, sort of an ancillary legal advisor at times. Um, and then I did the international police in instruction. Um, I was promoted to supervisory position in uh, 1995, 1995 and uh, supervised dr drug uh, task force and then came back in the office organized crime squad. Then I was assigned to an intelligence and then um, I was uh, transferred to our special operations to head that up. And we were offsite, um, covert identities, covert offsites. And at the time we worked uh, primarily counterterrorism because that was the hot you know, area. We, we watched a lot of individuals who we had information indicating that they had received training in other countries had been to you know terrorist training um but it was interesting we would watch them and watch them and watch them and nothing necessarily would happen you mentioned the SWAT team what what's the biggest misperception that people have about a SWAT team because most of us just know it from watching you know tv shows and so forth what's it what's it actually like to be on a SWAT team you know, it's it's part of the appeal is the uh, the teamwork, the brotherhood, and your the training and the constant training, the the, the train, train, train um, that has an appeal to certain people, and it it did. Um, again, I, I think it goes back to what I call the old days. Uh, I think they tended to have more fun too. We, we went on some missions and we would find a way to have a good time at the same time. And, uh, um, you know, we, there was one mission where we uh, spent a week waiting for the, the rain to stop so we could uh, go in on a meth lab. We, we were dropped in at, you know, certain locations. We had to walk through some fields at night crawl through some woods and then, you know, by daylight hit the, uh, the, the locations. And um, there were just some really characters that were on the team that would, you know, we would cut up and be serious at the same time. Um, I spent uh, five weeks at Waco at the siege there. Um, that was just a mixed, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll put it this way when, um, I, you know, there's, it's well known that there were conflicts between the negotiators and the tactical personnel, you know, to some extent. And uh, I was uh, picked at some point to, to go, it, Koresh had decided to re release a few of the kids. And uh, another agent and I were designated to drive our vehicle to, to pick up two of the kids. It was like a meeting point with Koresh's people. And we took the kids in, and and I remember driving. I took taking them to the command post, which was at an airport. And I remember looking in the rearview mirror, and, and this little girl, and looking at her eyes, and just thinking, she's so innocent. 
and I just had this overwhelming feeling like this is not going to go well for either side. And, and unfortunately, it, it didn't. Um, the FBI has so many uh, interesting, talented, you know, people, no matter what the background, very diverse backgrounds. You could be a school teacher, could be a, a you know, a scientist. Um, we had, I know one who was a veterinarian and he, you know, became an agent and uh, um, just, you know, could be hardcore uh, military type and then the artist. You know, one of one of the agents I was kind of um, he was older, you know, and he had been in the Vietnam War. This is back when I was a brand new agent, and uh, he had this gruff exterior, very um, matter of fact. And you know, one day he invited me, said, "Hey, come come with my family, have dinner, and you know, you know, meet the family." And I did, and and I found out that he's he's an artist. He painted pictures. Like, where did that come from? You know, it, so it's it's just a, a very, but what I, I believe is there's this uh, through the the testing, the, you know, psychological testing, the actual test you take, and th there's this thread that runs throughout that they look for. And that is basically, they're looking for people who want to do the right thing. And people who, um, you know, are, are team oriented. Um, and I've, I've found that in the private sector, you know, with my company, I've got uh, 10 or 12 former, you know, retired agents working under my company umbrella, and as well as other agency personnel, and they're just phenomenal people. But now you need to make a profit, you know, so it's more profit driven. But what I realized is, that when it comes down to it, we're still wired as public servants, even though we're in the private sector and we want to make a profit. We're still just wired that way. We want to help people. We want to make sure they're safe. Um, it, it's just, you know, it's just something about our, our personalities, I think. Just tell us a little bit more about your company and about the types of things that you do. Yeah, um, my company, it's, it's Investigative and Security Global Solutions. Uh, we are involved in almost any kind of investigation from A to Z. Uh, we do a lot of litigation support for law firms, for private clients, for families, uh, corporations, even corporations that have their own security departments. We, we uh, supplement them with investigations sometimes and security. We do security assessments, uh, vulnerability assessments of uh, sometimes businesses, sometimes corporate offices and, uh, you know, estates um, where uh, we will go in and, and, and advise them of what, you know, we think the risks are and what they need to do. We provide some uh, security and, and executive protection. Um, and, and the thing is, sometimes we get involved in uh, some some cases that some investigations that bring us back to the old days. If they're they're complex, uh, for example, without going into any details, we were recently um, in in another part of Texas, and I had uh, two two guys were former snipers in ghillie suits on the ground overnight uh, watching something while resting. Others were in strategic positions. 
watching things. Uh, so it was like a, you know, a surveillance sting kind of operation. Um, and it's, it's good to every once in a while to, to do that because, you know, see that you still, you know, have it and, you know, and it's kind of, it brings back the, the adrenaline from, you know, the old days. Uh, we do a lot of surveillance with no matter what kind of case it is, you know, theft of trade secrets, non-competes, uh, uh, you know, fraud just, you know, comes down to it. There's a lot of fraud. You know, you could categorize whatever it is. It's just fraud or theft. Um, and the final question I have is, I know that you live and work in Texas now, but you were born and raised in North Carolina. So who's got the best barbecue? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the, the North Carolina pork barbecue with the uh, red pepper vinegar sauce is, uh, I grew up with that. That's, uh, Texas barbecue um, is, uh, it's, it's great too. You know, the brisket, um, you know, it's the beef brisket with the, the red, you know, barbecue sauce and the, uh, um, you know, I live in Austin now, which it's you know, not only music, you know, one of the live music capitals, but uh, there's a lot of good food, a lot of barbecue here. <laughs> Houston has phenomenal food, too, just all all kinds. I, I, I tend to favor the North Carolina barbecue, but I don't get you know, a chance to eat it much anymore. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.